Uh, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. So I want to start with just a, a brief review of um, what we've kind of been through in the last couple of weeks. Obviously, uh, one of Ahab's sons died and another son took the throne. And somewhere in that process between Ahab's death, his son's uh, really kind of tragedy where he fell through a, a ceiling, basically, uh, the kingdom of Moab decided to separate from, it, from the northern kingdom and no longer pay them any tribute. So this is the time while the kingdom is weak, the kings are down, they're transitioning leadership and all that kind of stuff to break away. And so um, basically they decided to stop doing anything. And so uh, obviously uh, after uh, all of that happened, then um, they decided Joram in the north decided he wants to get Moab back and slap them back in line. And so he partners with the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat is in the south. They get together and they decide they're going to go do this and bring Moab back into the fold. And in the process, they pick up Edom along the way, who's also paying tribute to the northern kingdom, or at least to one of those kingdoms, maybe both. And they go into Moab to try to try to shut down Moab. But along the way, they run out of water for their cows and their whatever they've got with them, their horses, I'm assuming. You probably don't take cows into battle, but uh, you probably... probably Probably you take horses. I don't know why I said cows. <laughs> now I just have a mental image of him taking cows into battle. <laughs> oh, it's going to take me a little while to shake. Okay, um, so they run out of water for their horses and uh, and all their whatever they whatever else they have might have with them and uh, their cows and uh, and so they swear along the way after they run out of water that well, the Lord must be against us. That must be why we're out of water and why we can't find any water for animals. And so they go seek out a man of God, a prophet of God. And of course they find Elisha who is in the area. And so he, um, he tells them, no, in fact, the Lord isn't against you. If you would have just asked, this is a small thing for the Lord. He's going to grant you the things that you're missing and the things that you, you would need. So here's what's going to happen. These miraculous events are going to take place to ensure that you understand the Lord is with you. So the, the riverbed that's dry that you can't drink out of is going to fill with water just out of nowhere. There's not going to be rain or wind or anything like that. It's just going to fill up from the ground. And then you're going to walk in and you're going to conquer all the big cities. You're going to destroy all the fields. You're going to tear, tear down the big trees and all those kinds of things. And that's going to be proof for you that the Lord is with you. And sure enough, all of those things come to fruition. And so it's evidence that what Elisha is telling them is true. The Lord is going to be with them. So they have every reason to believe that Moab is going to be given back into their hand. And then Moab does something really funny. Uh, the king takes the crown prince and makes a sacrifice to their God, killing his own son to essentially arouse the attention of the God of Moab. Now, you're, let's say you're in one of the groups, Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, or in Edom, and you, you've been told by the man of God, God is with you, and here's evidence that God is with you. And all of these miraculous events, not, including, not least of which, is the filling up of a dry riverbed from below, that that's evidence that he's with you. You see that happen. And that Moab's going to be given into your hand. Then you go into Moab and 
They sacrifice their child, arousing their God, they claim. Would you be afraid and run for the hills? Well, you would think no. You would think, the man of God told me this. All these things have come to fruition. Therefore, Edom is going to be given into our hands. But once they see someone sacrifice their kid to their God, they assume their God is going to be aroused. And since they're in the land of where that God is, they flee, right? That's the level of unfaithfulness we're working with here, okay? That's, the, that's where the nations are at at this point. They're so entrenched in idolatry and they're so entrenched in uh, just pagan worship that they cannot fathom God through Elisha could possibly help them in the land of Moab after such an event. That's the tragedy of what's just taken place. Okay. Now, I want to set the scene. That's, so that's a review of where we were last week. Okay. I want to set the scene to help us kind of get in the mindset of what we're about to do, because I'm about to go through Scripture for the next two weeks. I'm about to go through Scripture pretty quickly. But won't pause. We won't be meeting next week because I'll be on vacation. So just remember that because I'll forget to tell you if I don't. Um, but where will be the next two times that we go through this content, uh, we're going to go pretty quickly through the next like four chapters or so. So tonight it's pretty much just two chapters, a lot of stories that just happen in rapid succession. But as we zoom out, I don't want to lose tons of details. Like I want to still go through the stories that are in there, but I want to keep in mind also the big picture of what's happening and so, uh, so that we don't get lost in any of the details, because these, these stories, I think, are all serving a, a bigger purpose. And um, so I want, I want to kind of set some of the scene at least a little bit for you, if we can. Um, remember, the people obviously are trapped in idolatry. And some chapters ago, back in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 12, uh, Jeroboam sets up uh, two uh, high places where he, in his plan, is that the northern kingdom is going to have places to worship. Now, this is not the temple in Jerusalem. This is a place in the south and in the north of the northern kingdom where they can go to worship that doesn't have them going into the southern kingdom. His fear is essentially that if they go into the southern kingdom, they'll get lost in Jerusalem and begin worshiping there and realize how sweet it is to worship the Lord and they will forget all about the northern kingdom and they will flee to the south. And so he sets up these basically uh, high places where they can practice some hybrid of cult worship of Baal and, and worship of Yahweh at the same time. And so it becomes this sort of syncretistic religion, right? That's sort of a hodgepodge of everything. And that's the plan, is sort of to lock the people into the northern kingdom. All right, that's really important to understand then what Elisha is about to do and what God is about to do, more precisely, what God is about to do through Elisha to the actual people. You're going to see that a couple of things. First, Elisha was requested of Elijah that he be given a double portion of Elijah's anointing, right? That's what he asked Elijah for. And Elijah said, well, I don't know if God's going to grant that to you, but if you see me taken up, then he obviously has granted it to you. If you don't see me taken up, then he hasn't granted it to you. And Elisha sees Elijah taken up, and he gets his mantle, and obviously it's happened to him. And then we get several fulfillments 
that are proof that that's happened. Elisha goes back across the river and he slaps the river with, uh, with Elijah's coat and the river parts. So we know, oh, yes, he does have Elijah's anointing. And then he goes across the river and he meets this group that we hear called the sons of the prophets, right? And, and so they uh, acknowledge, okay, we saw you part the water. We want to go over there and just check and make sure that you didn't do something to Elijah over there. We don't find his dead body somewhere, uh, you know, over there. But for now, that's okay. And so eventually they do it and they figure out, yes, Elisha does have the anointing. And then he does several other miracles where he, first of all, he blesses the town of Jericho that removes the curse that Joshua had put on it initially. And then he curses a group of kids that had called him bald. So I like that story. And, um, and so, so be, with all of those things, we see he has the ability to bless. He has the ability to curse. He clearly has the anointing. But it's what God is going to do through that anointing to the people in the northern kingdom who are trapped in the clutches of an idolatrous king. Not just one idolatrous king, a whole line of idolatrous kings that come from a multitude of people. So it's not like they're all of one line. God has replaced this line in Israel in the northern kingdom for some time and still they continue to be idolatrous. And so you've got this, idol- this idolatrous kingdom up north that's locked everybody into the land, will not let them go down to Jerusalem to worship. And Elisha is, it was told by God to Elijah. Elisha is the man. He is the one that's going to overthrow the line of Ahab and he's going to do it by several means. Well, what we get now in 2 Kings is just this run of miraculous events that take place through Elisha. And you have to ask, it's for several chapters, like four chapters. You have to ask, what's with all these stories? It's just miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Some of them are very odd. Some of them are pretty straightforward. What's with all these miracles? I, I think they actually serve a big purpose in the text of helping you see what God is actually doing for the northern kingdom. So we're going to start, and we're just going to kind of go through some of these miracles. We're only going to make it through two chapters, I think, tonight. And we also want, I also want to set up the, the kind of culture that we're in, too, because that, I think that helps just a little bit. So in 2 Kings 4, 1 to 7, that's where we're going to start tonight, is 4, 1 to 7. Um, Elisha performs a, a miracle for a widow who we hear is one of the, or she is the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. This is another time this group of people called the sons of the prophets comes to the fore. They're actually really important to, I think, what is going on here. But um, this, this is obviously some sort of prophetic office that these people fall into. And we see as far back as Samuel, in 1 Samuel, the prophetic office is really beginning. Remember what's happening when Samuel begins his, the little prophetic office? You remember this? You remember how God calls Samuel? He just, he just calls him, like verbally just calls him. So much so that he thinks Eli is actually talking to him, and he finds out it's not. But remember what's going on with Eli and Eli's sons at the time? It was pretty, it's, you know, it's wicked. It's the times of the judges and things like that are going on, and or the end of the time of the judges is going on, and and there's wickedness. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas are bad, bad characters. And in the midst of that sort of wickedness, God uses a special mechanism 
just verbal calling to bring out uh, Samuel. He does the same thing to Moses, by the way, right? In the middle of nowhere, he just says, hey, Moses, come here. I want to talk to you. And out of, out of nowhere, and, and it's because his people are trapped in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so God has these ways, it seems, of just, he just sort of unzips the sky occasionally in human history and steps into, steps into our world in a spectacular way that isn't normally the case. Well, it seems as though through Elijah, Elisha, and the sons of the prophets, he's doing a similar thing now. All of these seem to be following Elijah. Elijah sort of initiated a lot of this, sons of the prophets. They're obviously following along Elijah. They follow him up to the Jordan River, and then they stay on this side while Elisha, who seems to be one of this clan, this school of prophets, says, I'm going with you. He goes across the Jordan with Elijah when he's taken up, right? And so we see these uh, sons of the prophets, which obviously is this development of something of a school of prophets that train under their father, who was Elijah before and is now obviously Elisha, who's kind of commanding this sort of school of prophets. I didn't, I'm going to confess to you, I haven't always thought about prophets this way. Traditionally, I've really thought of prophets like Samuel and Moses and maybe Elijah or Elisha, maybe people that just like had this sort of anointing that just sort of fell on them and God called them in some spectacular sort of way and they became the prophet, right? That's not entirely how it works. It is, does work that way in a lot of cases. In a lot of the special cases, the big names that we see in scripture, the ones that write and things like that, they do have this sort of special communication with God. Very obviously that's true in scripture. But there's also a group of people that are kind of like, uh, I guess, essentially what we would say in modern vernacular, called to the ministry, that are, that are in there, that are training and apprenticing under these prophets. And that's essentially what these sons of the prophets are, effectively. And so this fellowship of people, it seems to begin, most people think, somewhere around 855 BC. That's essentially uh, around the time of Elisha's anointing. That's the first time they really start to appear in Second uh, Kings and things like that. And um, Elisha, obviously, by gaining the anointing, he then becomes sort of the master of this school of prophets, this, the sons of the prophets um, that Elijah had sort of formed. But think about this for just a second. Remember, northern kingdom, locked down into idolatry by wicked, wicked leadership. Uh, essentially held in bondage in Egypt. May as well be the same thing, right? They're held under the yoke of idolatry and slavery. And all of a sudden, two men, Elijah, then Elisha, with this special anointing, come almost out of nowhere. And God raises them up along with this school of prophets that are kind of moving along, doing the work of the Lord within the northern kingdom, right? Works that no one can deny. And so it's, you already get this sense culturally that God is doing something in and through these two men to get to his people who are right now held under this evil bondage. And somewhere around 855, this is, this is where we're looking at. Okay. Now, what's also obvious about 
these men, and you don't necessarily pick up if you just read past some of these verses, but when you think about it for just a second, these, these verses make a lot of sense. So um, they obviously live together in something of a, like a, a monastic type lifestyle. They, they live together in sort of a commune. And the reason that we know that is if you look at 2 Kings 6, 1 and 2, um, which is uh, midway down on your verse packet there, it says, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get uh, there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Now I want you to think about that verse or those two verses inside the culture that I've already laid out. Trapped in wickedness, vile uh, kings that are kind of holding them under the thumb of idolatry. And what is happening to this sons of the prophets school? It's growing, right? That alone is phenomenal because the king isn't allowing the people to go worship anywhere. So imagine for just a second, the government just says, no more church. Nobody can worship at all anymore. No one can. There's no worship whatsoever. Oh, you can, you can go to like a Mormon church, but you can't go anywhere else. That's the, only, that's the official religion of America is Mormonism. And only the Mormon, the Mormon churches or whatever you want to call them are allowed in your country. Now imagine within that culture uprises these individuals who believe the gospel and who are kind of communing together and are doing the work of God. Imagine what kind of miracle we would feel that really was. Survival of the gospel, essentially. Well, it's not much different here. There is a survival that's going on of God's word that's being preserved through these men and it's growing to the point where they can't fit in their commune anymore. They have to find a new one, all right? And so uh, they're obviously living together in this, sort of, in this sort of commune, and they petition Elisha for new quarters. And so um, we also see then after Elisha dies, this is where we also get reference to this, that this school perseveres somewhat into the future because about 25 years after Elisha dies, we get the book of Amos. And Amos, if you'll remember, he's just a farmer out of nowhere. And God just calls him to go prophesy. And he introduces himself that way. And he wants people to know exactly where he comes from. That it, this, I'm just a country boy. That's all I am. And he tells them in Amos 7.14, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor the son of a prophet. Now, I always thought before that had meant, well, he's, his dad wasn't a prophet either. That, I don't think that's what he means. I think he means, I'm not one of Elisha's you know, students or protégés. I'm not in that school that's obvi- that obviously people are still familiar with. This is a persevering group of people that move throughout the country and are there to preserve God's rule in a wicked land where worship of God is not allowed, essentially. They can't go to Jerusalem and worship. So um, I think that helps to kind of think about just the kind of cultural climate that we're talking about here. This is not your, your, just your average you know, Jewish culture like you'd probably be used to. All right. Now, with all of that in mind, let's move into these events that 
that happen in Elisha's ministry. And it, it just some of the clues that the author is really giving to us to show us what kind of the, the nature of these miracles that Elisha is performing. They're, they're very interesting. And if, you, if you've read through Elisha's miracles and you've read through the Gospels, you know that how, how, how very close some of Elisha's miracles are to Jesus's miracles, right? We're going to see the multiplication of bread. We're going to see lots of things like that, giving life to the dead, things like that, that are, are true of Elisha and are also true of Jesus. So, um, from, so, so he's proven himself to the sons of the prophets. He's sort of their father, if you, if you want to call it that. He, is, he has proven himself to the men of Jericho. He's obviously proven himself to the disrespectful boys that called him bald. He has uh, proven himself to the kings of Judah, of Israel, and Edom. They all know, well, he, there's water that came up in a dry riverbed, so obviously he knows. And then we see in 4.1 four, uh, through 7.20, all these supernatural events and these miracles that he does, and each one gives a little bit more evidence of Elisha's, both his influence and the power that God has actually given to him, and even more specifically, the ministry that God has given to him. Remember again, wicked people, they're totally without the word of the Lord, really, in their land. He's sort of the only representative of this, more or less. I mean, there's, there's a remnant, we know, but he's one of the remnant. He's a very strong part of the remnant, okay? So, the first miracle, he comes to this widow in 4, 1 to 7. And I want to read this story in just a second, but... Basically, she is facing a, a debt to her, her, these creditors. Her husband has died. He was one of the sons of the prophets, and he was their only means of provision. This was pretty common. And uh, now that he's died, she has really nothing left. And so she says, look, I'm going to be without a provision. And so that means that my sons are going to have to be sold into slavery, and they're going to have to go into somebody else's house and they're going to have to obviously do work there. And so here's what Elisha does. Let's, let's read the, the uh, paragraph here. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from, uh, she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another one. Then the oil stopped flowing. She should have brought more. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Okay. Um, now, slavery, when in, especially because of poverty, was not an uncommon thing. However, there was actually provision for this inside the law. And we find that in um, Leviticus 25, 39 to 43, okay? 
So I wanna, I wanna read that here. It's at the bottom of the first page of your verse packet. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. Listen to this. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possessions of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Now, remember, this is a, this is a pivotal thing that you have to understand and you have to keep in mind about the whole land situation in Israel and about all of this stuff right here. The land is not yours. That's not, that's not the way they understand property rights like we do in America. The land is not yours. The land belongs to God, okay? This is why it's a big deal, and we'll talk a little bit about this in the next two weeks in Ruth on Sunday mornings. This is why it's a big deal for somebody to have land and then have an heir to hand the land off to. If the land is not yours, it doesn't belong to your family. It is to be taken up by your family by the next heir, okay? You have a daughter, well, she goes off to the land where her, her husband's family owns, and they take over that land. If you don't have anything but daughters, your land is eventually going to be desolate, and it goes back into the tribal allotment, right? And so it's no longer, your family doesn't, poof, they're gone, right? Okay. So it's a big deal to have kids. Well, if she doesn't have any sons, and she has to sell these people off as slaves, under a vile kingdom that doesn't read the, the law, doesn't follow the law at all, don't care anything about God, her sons are gone. They're not coming back in the year of Jubilee. They are gone. Okay, say la vie. All right. So then what happens to the land she's on or any property she may have? Well, it's gone too. It goes back into the tribal allotment or wherever it goes into the hands of somebody else. And so what was the purpose of the kinsman redeemer? Well, his job, well, what he, what he does is he essentially raises up an offspring for the widow who's left without sons so that she can have kids and they can take the property and they can own it. By the way, we find out in Ruth, Naomi is selling a piece of land, right? That Boaz is going gonna, is gonna to get and he's going to raise up offspring and they're going to take that land. So, um, so the purpose of the kinsman redeemer is to get the land back for the person, what does Elisha do here? He certainly doesn't raise up an offspring. She already has offspring. He preserves the offspring she has so that they can stay on the land. So what he, he does for her is essentially become something of a kinsman redeemer to her by allowing her to escape the debt of slavery for her sons. You get it? You see, see the dots that are being connected here? Okay, so this is not just, I don't think, just some normal everyday miracle. Oh, look at that. He multiplied oil. Cool. Let's move on to the next thing. No, no, no. Wait, wait. In the midst of evil, God is providing a kinsman redeemer for a little family in the middle of nowhere, right? Okay. Let's see the next thing. Now, Elisha is moving through the land and he's doing ministry around the area, doing his prophetic type ministry as he goes about uh, the, this wicked nation. And this woman who is 
very wealthy. She and her husband are an older couple. They have no children. And they're pretty wealthy. And when Elisha comes into town, she invites Elisha to stay with her family. We've got a garage apartment in the back. It's great, wonderful view, okay? So Elisha takes them up on that offer and he comes and stays there. And at some point he wonders, you know, why are you being so nice to me? What can I do for you? I, I feel indebted to you. What can I do for you? And she says, oh, nothing. We have this extra garage apartment. We don't need it and you can stay in it. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to do something, okay? This time next year, you're going to have a child. And she says, oh, we're way too old for that. You've heard this story before, haven't you? Uh, we're, we're way too old for that. And there's no way we could possibly have a child. And lo and behold, she has a child. Go figure. Well, uh, oh, uh, he's too old to have it in any natural way. That's the blank. Okay. I got lost telling the story, but there it is. Okay. All of a sudden, one day, the child is out in the field. He's grown up a few years and he cries out to his dad, my head hurts, my head hurts. And, and the dad's like, what is going on? Probably some sort of aneurysm or something. Who knows what it is? But his head is really pounding. And obviously what happens at that point? Mama takes over, right? I don't know if you've ever been around mamas and their kids, especially their baby boys. But if something ever happens and you have to put your kid in an ambulance, there is no conversation. If only one adult can ride in the ambulance, there's no conversation about who that's going to be. Mama's going to jump in the ambulance. Dad has to ride the car on the way behind, right? Uh, we all know that. And so that's exactly what happens in this story. The child dies in his, in his mother's arms right there. Now, Elisha provided this child, and it has become now a, basically a harbinger of misery as it's died here in, as, a, as a small child. And uh, one can only imagine the kind of grief that she's undergoing. And so what this woman does is, she's, is, is everybody comes and asks her, what do we do? Are you okay? Are you okay? And she tells everybody, literally everybody that comes to her, it's fine, get out of my way. It's fine, get out of my way. She has her sights set on Elisha. The only person I'm going to see is Elisha. I'm not talking to anybody else along the way. I am going to see Elisha. And so she makes her way all the way to Elisha. People come and ask her. Her own husband comes and asks her, baby, are you all right? Is there anything that I can do? And she says, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Just get out of the way, okay? Elisha's servant, Elisha sees her coming down the road and he's like, I don't know why she's here. Why don't you go see, he tells the servant, Gehazi, why don't you go see how she is? And he, and he says, okay. So he goes out there and asks her how she is. I'm fine. Get out of my way. I'm fine. Get out of my way. I only want to talk to Elisha. So she finally gets to Elisha. Let's read some of this story here in First, Second uh, Kings. Uh, there's several different little passages. I kind of chopped it up a little bit so that uh, we could just kind of flow, follow the flow of the story. One day he came there. Uh, he turned into the chamber, rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the, the Shunammite. So he calls her in and he says, what can I do for you? Uh, and then in verse 14, uh, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He called to her. And uh, when he called to her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this, uh, at this season, um, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son. And about that time, the following spring, as Elijah had said to her, when the child uh, grew, had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. 
the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon and then he died. Um, so she, uh, verse 27, when she came to the mountain, the man of God, um, she caught hold of his feet. So she's already shooed away everybody else and said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. She grabs his feet and Gehazi, um, uh, or Gehazi uh, came, uh, came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress. And did I not say, uh, 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 and, the, and the Lord has hidden it from me and he has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, uh, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Okay. You understand what's happening here? So she first tells her husband, we didn't read this part, but she first tells her husband, I'm fine. She tells Gehazi, I'm fine. I want to see Elisha. She gets to Elijah, Elisha, and Elisha says, okay, obviously the, the kid is, something's happened to the kid. Take my staff, go lay it on his, on his face. And the mother's like, no, you're coming with me. And so Elisha's like, all right. So he falls. <laughs> I just love that story because that's still how mothers are. <laughs> to, to this day, it, nothing's changed. Um, and so Elisha came uh, again to Gilgal. Uh, there was a famine in the land and the sons of the prophets um, uh, uh, were, were, oh, no, no, sorry. Uh, where, where, why did I, why did I skip? What is that? 32. I skipped one. That's, I was like, what, what was I looking at? When Elisha came into the house, he saw uh, the child lying dead on his bed. So when he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord, then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on, on his mouth, mouth to mouth resuscitation, and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon it. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. Uh, so he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. All right. So here is Elisha giving this boy back his life, bringing life from the dead. Uh, to lose your son at that age, your only son, the heir, is essentially to lose everything, right? They're old already. Here they got it. They got this son, and they think this is going to be the heir, and he dies in childhood. Again, similar as the miracle before, Elisha is yet again restoring life to a family who is on the brink of collapse, right? Um, kingdom is wicked, no access to the word of God at all, right? And here is Elisha restoring life, giving life back to the dead. Okay, now keep going. Next is this uh, bucket of food that these sons of the prophets are eating, and um, it has become unsatisfactory, it has become spoiled in some capacity. How they know it's poison, they say. How they know that, I don't know. 
unless they got food poisoning from it and they're starting to throw up and things like that. All the other things that happen to you when you got food poisoning. And, uh, and so Elisha uh, calls for flour to be brought in and thrown into the pot. Now you might ask, how does flour fix food poisoning? Stop thinking in a natural way. It doesn't. Flour doesn't fix food poisoning. God fixes it, okay? He just manages to use the flour to do so. Just like he healed the boy, Elisha laying on top of him just was a mechanism is all all it was for God to actually supernaturally raise the boy. And the same here to cure the pot of food. Now, the reason why this is a big deal is because they're in the midst of famine. And a pot of food in the midst of famine, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a famine, but you can imagine, certainly, if you're in the midst of a famine, a pot of food that can feed all the sons of the prophets that have grown too big for their land or are growing too big for their land, that's a big deal. And so the fact that it's spoiled, he's now restoring fruit to the ground. Think about that for just a second. He's now re- restoring, the, the, basically reversing the curse of the famine, essentially, for the, the people. The food is preserved and they're able to eat, okay? All right. Um, and uh, 8.1 gives us that indication that that's during the famine, by the way, Second uh, Kings 8.1. All right, so moving on. Next, Elisha multiplies bread. The very next passage, you've probably heard something similar to like this in the midst of famine. He now multiplies bread. Look at 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44. Um, a man came from Baal Shalisha, uh, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. So remember, this is similar to Jesus's multiplying of the bread for the people that are there listening to his ministry. And you kind of get that sort of parallel when you read Jesus' ministry multiplying the bread for his people. Well, he, but I think a lot of people read through Jesus' miracles and they think, uh, well, that's neat. And that, that's an amazing story. And it's a testimony to the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. Well, it certainly is that. There's no question about that. That's true. But there's a lot more going on there than simply he just multiplied bread and proved his divinity. He's multiplying bread and he's doing all these miraculous works that are all some sort of reversal of the fall. Every single one of them. Bringing, bringing to life the dead. That's a reversal of the fall. Supplying food for those who lack it is part of the curse that God placed on the ground when man and woman sinned. He said, yeah, the curse is the ground. It's, you have to work for it. You're not just going to be able to throw an apple seed in Alabama and expect Honeycrisp apples to grow up in your backyard. Trust me, I've tried and prayed. Because <laughs> Honeycrisp apples, as we all know, are the best apples. There are no other, there's no, there's no contestant, right? So you can't just do that. You got to be in a certain climate at a certain place in a certain season and all those kinds of things. And everything has to be just right. And you have to kind of hold your tongue just right and, and for, for it to grow just the way you want it to. That's part of the fall. Well, Jesus, in all of his miracles, is demonstrating that the kingdom of God has come to you. 
That's what he says at the beginning of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has come to you, and I am the bearer of that kingdom. Watch this. And he starts doing all these things, and everybody goes, whoa. Wait, that's what the kingdom of God is going to bring? That's what the kingdom of God is going to bring? Well, now Elisha is coming into a land where everything is locked down. Nobody can worship the Lord. Pagan worship is the commonplace. And he is slowly, one by one, giving evidences to people. God sees you here. And he is, through me, reversing some of these effects. What is a king supposed to do? What was the blessing of David's ministry, David's kingship, when he comes and he, he believes the Lord, he humbles himself before the Lord, he prays to the Lord, the Lord, like Timothy brought up in Chronicles 7.14, he blesses them and heals their land, right? And he gives them fruit, they prosper, they have peace from their enemies. Well, Elisha is essentially instituting that. God is doing that through a prophet when he has previously done it through kings. The kings are wicked and evil. Okay, I'll do it through somebody else. God is going to do this through his people, and you're either going to get on board or you're not. But it's basically either shape up or ship out. And Joram and all the other kings before him, Ahab, everybody else, they've all decided they're not going to do that. We're going to do whatever we want. And God says, okay, then I'll do it anyway. And I'll do it through somebody else. If he can speak through a donkey, he can do it through anything he wants, right? So he, so he does. Okay, And this is what Elisha is doing in the multiplication of bread and the healing of people and the multiplying of oil, being kinsman redeemer and doing all of these kinds of things. He's slowly starting to show people evidences that God's kingdom is coming to them. It's actually impacting them in the midst of all this wickedness. You can't stop this. You can't do anything about it. Okay, so essentially cut off from the temple uh, and, and access to the temple, like we see in 1 Kings 12, 25 to 33, the northern kingdom is, is also cut off from the life-giving Lord of the temple, essentially, right? Well, not so much, because then he brings in Elisha, and Elisha come, becomes to them something of a temple himself. That the, the Spirit of God dwells within him as he moves throughout the land, impacting the people of God where they, where they live. It's, you know, I, I don't know for sure. But I imagine that things are going on in North Korea that we don't even know about. I don't know for sure. I don't have, I mean, everything, a lot of things are speculation. I did talk to a, min, a missionary one time. Should I be saying this? I don't know. <laughs> I did, talk, I just thought, we're online. I don't know. I don't know if I should say this, but we'll go ahead. Um, uh, chance it. Uh, no, I, I, I did talk to a missionary one time that said, just said, more things are going on there than you, than you even know. And I was like, how do we know that? And he said, well, there are ways that this kind of thing comes about. If we weren't online, maybe I would say a little bit more. But that's the only hint that I have, that something is going on there that, that we don't know. And I suspect that there will be a day where we find out that beneath the surface of everything in North Korea and various other countries where the gospel is locked down, God has visited his people somehow through who knows what means, through other people that have done all kinds of things at risk to their own life. I suspect, because historically, 
He's always done that. And he's doing that here through Elisha. All right. Um, now, not only that, but here's the, most, here's the best part about it, okay? His fame, God's fame, has not only spread throughout the northern kingdom through the miracles that Elisha is doing and through the uh, ministry of the sons of the prophets, his ministry is actually spread to the nations as a whole. Because we hear in chapter 5, here's this story of a man named Naaman, or Naaman. He, he has leprosy, and he's a commander of the Syrian army. Well, the Syrian army had been given some success, and what we think that success might have been is uh, military victories back in 1 King 22, where Syria had come in in Ramoth Gilead and kind of whipped the tail of Israel, essentially. And as a result of probably that battle, uh, they get this little slave girl, and they bring her back, and she serves in the household of, Naaman's, of Naaman. She serves Naaman's wife. And this, this girl in Israel who was captured in some raid, has heard about Elisha. Naaman comes down with leprosy, and she says to Naaman's wife, too bad he's not in Israel, because if he saw the man of God in Israel, and she specifically calls out the man of God in verse 3 of chapter 5, she calls him out. She says, if he had gone, to, if he would go see the man of God, then he would be fine, because this guy could do all kinds of things, all right? Kingdom of God is with this guy, okay? And so, of course, as husbands and wives do, they start to talk. Naaman hears what the, the slave girl has said. And so he picks up and he goes into Israel. But he ignores the man of God thing. And he thinks, well, if the kingdom of God is really here, then it's going to come through the king. And so where does he go? Well, he goes to Jerusalem. And he goes to the place where the king dwells. And he tells the king, he brings a message from his master. And he says, hey, uh, here's the message. And the message says, if you heal Naaman... From his leprosy, I'll be forever grateful. And the king just goes, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Keep in mind, it's probably true. We know it's true. Syria had already, you know, whipped up on Israel before. And so the king likely sees this as a threat. If you don't heal him, I'm going to come back in and I'm really going to do damage this time. And so he thinks, cool, am I God? Can I turn over leprosy? Are you serious? I can't do that. And about that time, he gets a note from Elisha who says, send him over here. Right? like a little text message or something. And so he goes to Elisha and Elisha tells him, look, here's what you're going to do. You're going to dip seven times in the river. And he's like, what? In the, this river? No way. I'm not dipping in. That's, that's ridiculous. We have better rivers where I come from. And so he starts to leave and his servant is like, I mean, really? We came this whole way. And he's just saying seven times in the river. What, what does it hurt? Just dip in there seven times. If it doesn't work, oh, well, we'll go back home. But if it does, you'll be clean. And so he dips seven times and he has the skin of a baby when he comes back up, is what it says. All right. So when he comes back up, obviously, he wants to pay Elisha for his service. And Elisha says, no, I'm not receiving any payment for, your serv for, the, for this service because truth be told, it didn't come from me. And so Naaman insists, but Elisha says, no, I'm not doing it. And so Naaman leaves. And about that time, Gehazi, God bless him. He's been with Elijah so long and he almost made it and he just fell short right at the end because he hears Naaman saying to Elisha, hey, I'll give you money. I'll give you lots of things. And Elisha says no. And Naaman's like, yeah, okay. And watches him down the road and he just sort of breaks off into a run and goes after Naaman and says, look, somebody's come up and demanded payment from my master. If you give me two talents of silver and two changes of clothes, that'll be great. And he pays Naaman two talents of silver, which is about uh, 
$30,000. So a talent of silver is about 15,000. It's a weight. So it's about $15,000 worth of silver. And so he wants two. So that's $30,000 worth of silver, essentially, is what it translates to. And two changes of clothes. Now, he comes swaggering back in these new clothes to Elisha. And here's a guy who has just raised the dead. He's multiplied oil. Uh, he's multiplied bread. He's done all these kinds of things for all these people. The kingdom of God is with him. What are the odds that he has no idea what Gehazi has done? Zero. It wasn't a good plan, but sin makes you do stupid things. And so Elisha turns to him and he's like, are you serious? <laughs> You've got a big gold clock hanging around your neck. I mean, really? Like, obviously, it's, you've taken some money. And so he curses him with what Naaman had. So again, blessing and cursing. But here's the deal, is that the fame of the kingdom of God, which has visited the people in the north, has now spread to the Gentiles. Does this sound familiar? This is why Jesus' ministry is so, and the biblical authors make sure you understand, Jesus' ministry is so parallel to Elisha's. is because just like Elisha, Jesus comes into darkness and the land of darkness has seen a great light, and he brings the kingdom of God to them, doing many of the same miracles that Elisha does. And that fame then spreads to the Gentiles, which is why you and I are here today, is because of that. So, uh, so it's in, what's interesting is that the kingdom of Israel, um, who is supposed to be a mediator for the kingdom of God, and, to, and, and, and spreading God's blessing around the world. That's what David was supposed to be. We're supposed to be a prosperous nation, a fruitful nation. Fruit will come up from the ground because essentially the king who brings the kingdom is, is essentially seen as reinstituting the Garden of Eden, bringing back the, or reversing the curses of the fall, which all of them fail. They all fall susceptible to the curse. It's not until Jesus who begins to really reverse the curse of the fall and institute the kingdom of God really, really and truly. So they're supposed to be this mediator and a blessing to the nations, and they can't because wickedness continues to uh, really forestall blessing to the nations and idolatry, obviously. But God, through Elisha, operates as something of a kinsman redeemer who restores blessing and liberty to people who are on the verge of collapse, he becomes a healer. He becomes a hope for the nation. And in Naaman and Gehazi's story is one that meads out justice. All of these things the king should be doing, but are far too wicked to do. So in the midst of wickedness, God still reaches his people through the person of Elijah. And then in the New Testament, we see where Elisha died. And all the hope of the kingdom of God sort of dies with him. Will we ever get this person who is all of these things in one, who is a kinsman redeemer, who buys us back from the grave? Will we ever get this person who raises the dead, who gives sight to the blind, who multiplies the fruit of the land for people? Will we ever get this prophet again? Yes, but he's not just a prophet He's also a priest in that he does this between you and God, and he's a king. So he's uniting all the offices and becoming what even Elisha fell short of being because he was only a man. Questions?
just a comment that Elisha, what he's doing, he's through his miracles, he's bringing people back to the word of God. Yes. Yes. What what the miracles are done to do is to say, this is what God has already said. Yes. And that's what Jesus said, because God said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yes. Yes. He's speaking my word. Yes. And that's what our wicked culture needs to hear is what God has already said. Yes. All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And certainly let's thank him for Jesus. Heavenly Father, um, we are grateful. Uh, gratitude doesn't even begin to express uh, where we now stand by, by sheer grace and mercy. Um, that in the midst of our own sinfulness, while we were enemies. Um, Christ died for us, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, and bought us back from the grave, uh, redeemed us. He has, and is beginning through your kingdom to reverse the effects of the fall. We who were sinners have within us the indwelling Holy Spirit leads us in righteousness, real, real righteousness. It leads us to be able to please you through actions that he lays out beforehand and gives us the power to, to do. What a blessing that is, that we who are sinners can actually now live to your glory please you, and all of that is an effect of what Christ has done for us in his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Oh, what, a, what a blessing that is. And to the point where we take it for granted now, 2,000 years removed from the cross, we, we take it for granted where we stand now with you just because it, see, we're so used to it. And yet, when we pause and think, this is a real amazing thing that you've done for us, that your grace and your mercy has come to us in the midst of darkness and given us salvation. Only you could do that. And you have done it. And we're grateful for it. And I pray that through all of this, through our study of the Old Testament, it just continues to draw us closer to you as we realize more of what we were as a result of the fall and what you are as a God who, who is above it all and yet also has transcended um, or has condescended to us and come to us in the person of Jesus. I pray that that will forever be a remarkable thing to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.